Hey everybody, as promised, this is a special edition episode of the Running Rogue podcast. This is, of course, Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas, and today we're going to talk about some recent running current events. There's a lot to cover. Don't know how long this is going to go, but didn't want to have the confines of a 20 or 30 minute intro to get through all of it because we've got a lot to cover in recent running events and it's only going to pick up as the build to the World Track and Field Championships in Doha builds this year. But so the first thing on that note is to talk about here is certainly an athlete who will have a place at those World Championships is Yomif Kachoka. He I recently talked about him missing the mile indoor world record by 0.01 seconds as he was trying to beat Hicham El-Garouge's 22-year-old record. Well, recently, on March 3rd at a meet in Boston, he was able to get it done, effectively smashing the indoor mile world record to run a 3.47.01, beating the previous record by almost a second and a half, and also, therefore, beating his previous PR by a second and a half to now own the fastest indoor mile of all time. It also happens to be the ninth fastest mile ever and the fastest mile run in the world in any place indoor or outdoor since Alan Re- Alan Webb ran a 346 mile to get the US record outdoor record in 2007. So basically Yomov Kachelka ran the fastest mile in 12 years and beat El Garouge's 22-year-old record. Really, really impressive performance. He was paced through the halfway by U.S. 800-meter specialist Eric Sawinski and ran a negative split for the mile. I think he came through about a second behind world record pace through the 800-meter point, but had a negative split to get it done in 347. And so here's here's the question that ultimately comes up with this, which we'll get to a full discussion on in a second, is is this an athlete that we can believe in, that we can root for, whether you're from Ethiopia or not? This is something at least I've gotten in our local community, people excited about this world record. But they're asking me, is this a guy I can believe in? So we'll get to that in a second, obviously alluding to potential doping. There was an entire Let's Run message board thread recently on, is Yomif Kachoka doping? And we can't know the answer, but I'll talk in a second about what I think and what I believe in and whether or not he's an athlete that I'll be choosing to root for since that's my right as a fan. But we also have to celebrate the result of the second place runner in this race, Johnny Gregoric, who ran a big mile PR for him, PRing by three seconds or just slightly over three seconds to run a 349.98. So he got under 350 indoor to now own the sixth fastest indoor mile of all time and the second fastest U.S. indoor mile behind the great and ageless Bernard Lagat. Johnny Gregoric also bested his father's PR, and so he previously, with his 353 
PR was not the fastest Grigorik in his family, but now holds that title with this smoking fast 349.98. So hats off to Johnny Grigorik. He had made the world champs in 2017 in the mile, which was sort of his coming out party, but then had been dealing with injuries and, and other challenges, hadn't really come back and had a huge result since that world championship. And so this is good to see. And he's coming into form at a good time with the world championships this year and with Tokyo next year. And he's going to have to be with this result, one of the favorites at the U S champs over the next two years in leading up to both of those global championships. So hats off Johnny Gregoric excited for you. We also have to congratulate Johnny Gregoric on his recent wedding. So he is now a taken man. Ladies, you will not you will not uh, be able to woo his heart. That is now taken as we had some some friends going to that wedding. So let's go back to Kachalka though, because again, this is a question I've gotten from many people. Is this an athlete, Chris, that you choose to believe in? And as I said, we can't know if he's clean or not. That is unknowable unless I guess unless he tests positive for some sort of controlled stub substance. Now, so what does that mean? And I'm not going to say here whether I think he's doping or not, but what I will talk about is whether or not he's an athlete that I'm going to choose to to believe in and root for, which is my right as a fan. And again, one of the things that I think has helped me get past my cynicism as a fan is to recognize that I'm in control of who I get to invest my energy in. And so for me, as a fan, I go deep and then I have a list of things I'm looking for to decide whether or not an athlete is an athlete that I believe is someone that I can root for and believe in and invest my time and energy in. And so I look at I look at different things to kind of decide whether or not that makes sense. And so what what are some of those things? Now, interestingly, Yomif Kachelka is an Ethiopian athlete who's 21 years of age. And so he's already very, very young. So one of the things I look at is what's the history of an athlete? And do they have performances going back in their history that that point to the fact that they could get to a performance that they might have had in, 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 in the current day? And so if you look at Kachelka's history, it all it all makes sense. I mean, he's a guy who's been running at the highest level at the World Youth Championships since 2013, since he was 16 years of age. At 16, he won the World Youth Championships in the 3K, getting first there in a 7.53, which is a smoking fast 3K. The next year at a big European meet, the Estrava Golden Spike meet, when he was 17 years old, he ran a 7.36 and beat Nick Willis and Bernard Degott, a couple of big names, getting second in that race. And then that same year, later, in the, he won the 5K in the World Youth Championships in a time of 13.25 at the age of 17 years old. Now, those aren't miles, but they're certainly 
events where you need to be a fast miler in order to run a fast 3k or a fast 5k and often those events all come together so since he was 16 years of age he was putting together performances that would all point to the fact that he's a talented guy who could potentially do what he's doing here so that seems to make sense then another thing i look at is associations who's his coach or who are the other athletes that he's working with and are there any question marks there in this case he's working with alberto salazar at the nike oregon project we don't yet have a ruling from USADA on whether or not anything shady has been happening there or whether or not Salazar is confirmed to have done things that are against the U.S. anti-doping and the World Anti-Doping Code. But we do have evidence from athletes that have been in that world, including Kara Goucher, Dathan Ritzenhain, and others to say perhaps that that's a a training group and a coach that likes to operate in the gray and find those advantages, however they may come. And so if you look at his associations, in my world, that's at least in my fan world. Again, this is the fan jury, not the anti-doping jury, but my fan jury world puts a strike there. That's That's not a group. And while I certainly follow them and I appreciate what that group does at some level as a broad fan of the sport that's not a group that i choose to invest my time in as a fan because of some of those dark clouds that have hung over salazar and company for now several years so check on the performances that seems to make sense given his histories at a steady increase and improvement from a, a very young age x on the associations Another thing that I look at is how does an athlete respond to questions about doping and what's their demeanor? One thing I found is that I'm not interested in choosing to support and root for athletes that are getting angry or who are mad about those questions. You know, I want to support athletes that are welcoming those questions or who are actively engaging in those discussions and talking about ways the sport can get better versus deferring and and deflecting those or sometimes you'll see athletes try to point to other factors well it couldn't be doping because this little marginal gain in the case of Lance Armstrong these marginal gains are getting me to this place it all makes sense don't you see and so as I was researching Kajelka, I found a really interesting article about him from last year after the world indoor championships And he was asked this question, you know, what about those that might say your results indicate doping? And interestingly, what he said in answering that question was he pointed to a policy that the Ethiopian government had recently re-implemented. And he said, where basically the Ethiopian government is granting land bonuses to these athletes for big victories. And I guess this was a practice that actually dates back to the heyday of Haile Geber Sulasi, the great, the great, one of the greatest of all time, and we've talked about before on this podcast, 
Gabriel Selassie was granted land bonuses after some of his victories. I guess the government got away from that practice and is now back to that practice where they're granted land for big victories. And so Kachelka actually pointed to that practice. He said, he said, we receive a lot of dollars for winning competitions, but if our country gives us extra motivations, we will get win again and again. The land bonuses are motivating me and giving me the incentive to do the extra things to win. Doping is not driving it. That was his answer when asked those questions. And again, to me, this is, I'm not a judge and jury in the court of anti-doping, but I am a judge and jury in the court of my fanship. And unfortunately, that one, that answer doesn't pass muster for me because basically he's saying, it's the land that's motivating me. It's giving me the extra motivation to, to have these amazing performances. It's not doping. So kind of deflecting and deferring to something else versus really stepping in and, and addressing the question head on. You know, and if, as I look at that response, I think, well, if money is a motivator and land is a motivator, then wouldn't that also be a motivator to dope so that you can get those things? As we know, in our world system of anti-doping, the risk-reward equation is completely out of whack. I think the NFL is a, is a, NFL football is a great example when the rewards are so great, million-dollar contracts, and the risk is low, a four-game suspension, which is the initial suspension for a doping violation in the NFL, then, of course, you're going to dope because... You know, using steroids, using hu- human growth hormone because the risks are far or the consequences are far fewer than the rewards. And so in this case, you're just changing that risk reward equation for these Ethiopian athletes that now not only are they winning money and fame, they're also getting land. And so to me, that provides more incentive for them to actually go out and, and cheat the rules. And again, I'm not saying Kachoka is, but when I look at that kind of a response, it causes me to raise some flags and gives me another X in, in the overall algorithm I'm looking at to decide whether or not I want to be a fan or invest time in an athlete. And so for me, the bullshit meter kind of rises there a little bit and it's another X in, in the, the box there to say, this isn't somebody I necessarily want to invest in. And so at the end of the day for me, He's he's not an athlete for those those reasons. It's it's the association issue and sort of the doping response issue that are red flags for me in this situation. Not to mention, and I haven't mentioned this red flag, the fact that he's beating an athlete's times, Hicham Al Garouj athlete who has some questions on his record as to whether he was a clean athlete. So when you're also getting these outsized performances that are records potentially owned by athletes that weren't clean. That also is another strike against you, in my opinion. So I'm not a believer. I'm not a fan for those reasons. And again, who knows if he's clean or not, but he's not an athlete that I'm going to choose, at least at this time, to invest in. Of course, I'll follow him. Of course, I'll see what he's up to. 
just so I can know the the full context, but but he's not an athlete that I'm going to be investing my time in or who's going to go out of my way to go watch a race or go watch a world record attempt that he's trying to make. So for better or for worse, that's where I land on Kachelka. And hopefully that gives you a little window into how I choose to invest my time as a fan. And again, everybody can choose differently on, on this equation and that's okay that's the beauty of fanship some people may want to be a fan and that's fine i'm not judging anybody who chooses that path i'm also not judging the athlete he in my mind may or may not be clean i don't know and it doesn't really matter to me i've just decided because of those x's against him that he's not somebody that i want to invest my time in as a fan and there are other athletes that i do want to invest my time in and I have a finite amount of time and energy to give to the sport. So that's, that's the way I look at it. And these are sort of the types of equations that I'm algorithms that I'm playing over in my head as athletes pop up and I choose to invest in them or not. And again, that's my choice. Others may have different perspective. And of course, if you do, I'd love to hear about it because the debate is always interesting, but again, I'll be following Kachelka at least. And I expect him to be, a force to be reckoned with in the world championships outdoor that will be coming up this summer. So, so there you go. That's, that's number one that we need to talk about. The second thing we need to talk about is the Tokyo marathon, which happened uh, early March. It's kind of interesting because the weather ended up being in some ways, very similar to Boston last year. It was, it was crazy with, Mostly rain and cold. The wind wasn't as extreme, but you had a lot of athletes at the elite level that were dealing with hypothermia. One of those athletes is Matt Yano, who trains under Ryan Hall and who got second at the U.S. Marathon Championships. It's at CIM in Sacramento. He was trying to go to Tokyo and get a big result, but was unable to because of the weather. He ended up finishing, but he said succumbed to essentially uncontrollable shaking and chills at one point during the race. And so that happened similar to Boston last year for some of the elites and it made for really interesting racing up front. So let's break it down. Starting with the men's race, the race started out fast and the temps, the temps were, were pretty perfect. I think for marathoning it was 42 degrees Fahrenheit, little wind but it was raining, and so I think rain ultimately combined with the cold became a challenge. The 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 group went out actually pretty quickly, more or less just, I would say, more or less on course record pace. Course record for, for Tokyo is 203.58, owned by former world record holder Wilson Kipsang. And, and so there was a group of ultimately eight athletes that came through halfway in 102. Just a little bit slower than course record pace. It was five East Africans and then three Japanese runners in that top group. And ultimately, though, there was massive carnage because I think what happened was that cold and rain combination got to those athletes. And if you look at some of the pictures, you could see tons of umbrellas and the roads were, were pretty slick. And I think that ultimately caused things to fall apart for a lot of athletes. So even though there were eight athletes together through halfway, if you look at the final results, there's there's at least for the top 
five runners, pretty big gaps between them. The race was ultimately won when he broke away at about 19 miles, ultimately won by Burhanu Legacy from Ethiopia, who ran 204.48, so he actually maintained his paces pretty well. There was a slight positive split there, but but really not too bad, especially given the conditions, and he just gradually started pulling away at about 19 miles and pulled away from the remaining East Africans that had been able to hang with him. At that point, those other two athletes that had gotten to that point with him were Verbed and Kuroki, who is a Kenyan athlete who actually trains in Japan, but he ended up two minutes back. So he lost two minutes over the final seven miles or so. And Dixon Chumba, who was defending champion, lost four minutes in those final seven miles or so to run a 208.44. So you had 204 with Legacy, 206 with Kuroki, and 208 for Chumba to make up our podium. So exciting for 19 miles and then the carnage ensued. Interestingly, those three Japanese athletes that went with that faster group fell apart completely and the top Japanese runner ended up being a collegiate Japanese runner who wasn't one of the top Japanese runners, at least on the initial list. If you read Brett Lawner's work, Kinsuki Horio, who I'm probably butchering that name, he ran a 210.21 to be the top Japanese athlete overall with and the fifth athlete in the race. What's crazy, though, to me, if you look at the depth of the field on the Japanese side, is that they had every runner from fifth place to 30th place in this field and even extends well beyond that. The depth of the Japanese marathon machine is, is really quite impressive. And then, as I mentioned, the lone American in the elite field, Matt Yano, ended up with a 2.20 to finish in a time that was about eight minutes slower than his PR, and he was 55th overall after succumbing to hypothermic-type conditions. He said he was shaking and shivering uncontrollably as he ran. So if you think about the fact that he still finished, it's really, really impressive. And it just goes to show you that you never know what can happen in a marathon. And sometimes the weather, just like Boston last year, throws you a curveball and you got to adapt. And sometimes some people are going to be able to manage those conditions better than others. In this case, Legacy managed it really well to run nearly even splits a 204. Incidentally, Legacy also owns the third fastest marathon, marathon debut of all time running what is still his PR of 204, 15 or 16, I believe, that he did in Dubai previously. So that, I think, solidifies him now with a major marathon win and a couple of 204s under his belt as as a contender for the podium when we're starting to look at the Olympics in Tokyo next year in 2020. So that'll be something to watch out for. Now, if we switch over to the women's side, Interestingly, Ethiopians swept the top top spots on both races. So Ruti Aga actually came away the women's winner and I think was due for this after having three prior runner-up finishes at World Majors. She finished second last year in both Tokyo and Berlin and then also second in 2017 in Berlin. So... 
three straight world major attempts where she'd finished second and finally got the breakthrough here in this one. Aga also had recently finished third at the Houston half, running a really, really smoking fast 106.56 to set her up for this result in, in Tokyo. Interestingly, on the women's side, the race was much tighter. It really held together until the final 2K, where Aga started to pull away from countrywoman Helen Tola, who ended up running a 221.01. Shere Demise came in at 221.05, and then Florence Kiplagat, 221.50. So you had here a sweep on the podium for the Ethiopian women, and Florence Kiplagat getting fourth place to to round things out in the top four only separated by a minute and 10 seconds so a much much closer race that really as i said went down to that final roughly mile and a quarter where aga put anywhere from 20 seconds to a minute and 10 seconds into the field to finish things out pretty strongly there so you've got to you got to Tip your hat to that and also now think that with three straight runner-up finishes and now a top-of-the-podium finish and a 218 marathon PR, Rudy Aga is someone who can both race well, finish strongly in a race, but also run run a really fast time. So she would be one that we've got to watch among now a long list of women to going into Tokyo next year. Although I think it's going to be interesting how the Ethiopian Federation chooses athletes for the Olympic team because of they're just really 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 stacked when you throw in when you throw in Tiranesh Dababa, Rudi Aga, Tola, Demise, it's it's going to be ultimately a really, really tough call for that federation to make, and some really talented runners going to get left out of the equation. So we'll see how that plays out. Interestingly, marathon world champion Rose Talimo did not have a good day. She ended up ten minutes back in ninth place after falling apart over the latter parts of the race. And if you look at things uh, from a first American standpoint, the great Dina Castor was the first American in the field, although she did not have a day that she wanted either, finishing 48th place in a 2.51.58, very far off of what her potential would have been, but she also had some challenges during the race, which she talked about on Twitter. A couple of spills, obviously affected by the weather, just like she was in Boston last year. But this is now her fifth marathon major done and she only lacks berlin from her marathon major resume having done chicago london boston new york and now tokyo she's going to add berlin to that list my guess is with dina who has been on this show as we talked about her book let your mind run my guess is she wants that u.s the Olympic trial standard. And I think she was going for it in Boston last year. I think she was going for it, hopefully in Tokyo, but the weather didn't cooperate either time. I think she wants that standard. My guess is we'll see 
Dina towing the line in Berlin to get that final world major and hopefully get that sub 245 U.S. trials qualifying time because I think Dina is somebody who wants to be at the trials, who wants to be able to compete with the young young ladies there and somebody with her skill set. I know she's a little bit older at this point on a hilly trials course who has said that last year she thought she could win in Boston given her preparation prior to that race and all that was vanquished by the weather. But my guess is she wants to be on the line in Atlanta next year. And, and you never know on a tough course with variables, like could be potentially warm weather in Atlanta. Dina is somebody who could at least mix things up with the best U S marathoners out there. So on a tough course, so that, that will be fascinating to see, but my gut is, and my prediction will be that we'll see Dina on the line in Berlin and that then we'll also see her after she gets her OTQ there. We'll see her on the line in Atlanta. So as a, as a wild card athlete that you can root for there. So we shall see, but there you go. That's the recap on Tokyo. Another fascinating world major with some weather drama. So it seems to seems to be a, a trend that that we're getting to. Okay, now we've got to turn to a couple of related topics. We're gonna to turn to talking about Tokyo. Recently the Atlantic Track Atlanta, Atlanta Track Club had a Olympic trials test event. It was an eight mile race in Atlanta for top U.S. runners to basically get a chance to preview the trials course. And so that happened. We'll talk about those results relatedly. And just this past weekend, on March 10th, the IAAF released its new Olympic standards for for next year for, for all track and field events, from the 100 meter to the high jump to obviously the marathon and all the distance events. And those new standards and a new process by which Olympians will be chosen has made big waves within the running world. And so we'll talk about both because they're certainly related and there's certainly impact for how things may play out in Atlanta next year based on those new standards and the new process to get Olympians. So we'll dig into all of that now, but we'll start by talking about the Olympic trials test event this eight-mile eight race that the Atlanta Track Club put on recently for elites, both men and women, to get a chance to test out the Olympic course. And basically that course consists of three six-mile loops, and then at least the 26.2 version will consist of three six-mile loops that will be consistent, and then one 8.2-mile loop, which comprises those same six miles plus a 2.2 mile adder at the end of the race. So they'll start by doing three six mile loops for 18 miles to begin the race and then do that uh, that six miles again for a fourth loop, but then have that last loop will have a 2.2 mile adder to finish things up at the end. And a couple of takeaways from from this first of all is that it's a tough course i looked at the elevation chart before the race and you'll see that and this is something let's run posted on their site 
you'll see that there's essentially no flat sections in either the six mile loop or the 8.2 mile loop. It's a constant steady stream of rolling hills up and down, some steeper than others. If you look at the course in total, it's about 1200 feet of elevation gain, which again, you know, it depends on what device you're looking at or who's whether you're using Strava or Map My Run, and some of those elevation numbers can sometimes be a little bit off, but it's about 1,200 feet of total gain, which is significant for those that run the Austin Marathon, which is notorious for being a tough course here in this city. It has about 1,000 to 1,100 feet of elevation gain, and so this Olympic Trials course actually has even more of that. And when and so I was able to. And and all the elites that were reacting to it said it's going to be tip, it's going to be super hilly. We actually had one of our runners, Sarah Rimmel, who is trains with our team row group. She was there doing this doing this test event. Incidentally, Sarah found out after she qualified for the trials at at CIM that she's pregnant, which is cool and exciting. So she's right now in in baby mode but we'll still be towing the line next year on the last saturday in february to do this race but she went out there to do this test event just to scope out the course ended up averaging 630s on the eight mile course and doing that pretty well for somebody who's I think now 17 weeks or so pregnant. So kudos to Sarah on that. But I texted her afterwards. I said, hey, how was the course? And her response was, OMG, so many hills, never flat. Loop was contained within the city, which was cool. Not any desolate spots, really. Hills were either long and steady, incline or short and medium and steep, equal amounts of both. But for every up, there was a down and some weird turns too, especially towards the end. So... That was her quick recap, but both Sarah and all of the elites talked about that, that this is going to be tough. And while the weather was good for this test event, Atlanta is also a place where it could potentially be warm on a final Saturday in February. So that will be something that will be a variable as well. And for fortunately for us, this type of course favors athletes who train in Austin because we've got the perfect terrain to simulate that Atlanta course, but it's going to be a factor for everybody and something that I think will definitely cause some chaos in who potentially makes the top three and therefore could be eligible to make an Olympic team because not all athletes are good at that constant rolling because can be fine can be difficult to find a rhythm on those types of courses and even if you look at a course like Boston and New York who 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 are which are both known as relatively challenging courses they also have sections that that are more consistent or a little bit flatter where you're, you're kind of able to find a little bit of rhythm at least for a section and I don't know that this Atlanta course is like that. So you've actually got to find a rhythm on the hills, which is a completely different equation. And so we'll see. But I think it's going to make for potential chaos and really open things up on both sides of this field. Naturally, I think the the, the women's list of potential 
top three athletes is going to be a little bit more narrow than the men's, but the men's side especially, and depending on what happens with Rupp, is going to be wide, wide open. So anyway, so with that all as context, let's look at the results for this Road to Gold event. We'll start on the men's side. You had the the U.S. Marathon champion from CIM, who I also had on the show here at the end of the year, Brogan Austin. He won with a decent margin at the end and I think showed that he's a serious contender. Again, Brogan trains with with the 10-man elite group and has now, I believe, moved to train with them in Colorado. And he got the win in 38.07 to take a 10-second victory over former Olympian and top 10 of the Olympics, Jared Ward, who ran a 38.17, and then Parker Stenson, who ran 38.25, Parker being a Austin area product who also went to the University of Oregon. He's an athlete that we've talked about before on the show. He also had four athletes from the what was so what was the Reebok Zap Fitness Group, which is now the on-running Zap Fitness Group in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Matthew McClendock was seventh, Andrew Colley ninth, Josh Azuski tenth, and Joe Stillen, who we've had on the show, was eleventh and thirty-nine twenty-seven. Interestingly, if you look across the results here, there were clearly some athletes that were probably taking this more as a training run or a tempo day so they could really focus on scouting the course. Dathan Ritzenheim was there. He finished 20th, just over two minutes back of Brogan Austin. Shadrach Biwat, also a Brooks Hansen athlete, was with him in 40-10, so right behind him, which tells me that those two guys were potentially running that thing together as some sort of steady run just to really not race, but take in the course and figure out the all, you know, all the undulations and try to think through strategy as they went. Bowman track club athlete, Andrew Bumbleo was, was there in 12th. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily think we can, think of this as a pure race because I think you had a probably especially in this case a mix of athletes that were doing different things depending on their goals for the day but I do think that this kind of result solidifies Brogan Austin as an athlete that you've got to take seriously you know he won the U.S. Marathon champs beating Matt Yano there coming from behind to do so showing a really fast final kick to get things done and and then showing up here and and beating former Olympian Jared Ward here. And I think that means Brogan Austin's on form. Clearly this is a course that will suit him. And and you gotta like what the whole ten man elite group is doing. So watch out. Brogan Austin. He's I think slowly moving out of that that category of a potential wild card to being somebody who you got to think is going to be one of those make or break athletes that will be in the mix of at least a favorite for the podium, if not a favorite for the top spot, depending on what happens with Rupp. If you look on the women's side, Amy Craig separated pretty early from the groups. Amy Craig, of course, from 
the Bowman Track Club group, she ended up winning by by over a minute, 43-23. And Carrie Demob actually also from the Bowman Track Club, but who trains with the the pro, not the elite group. She ended up in 44-24. Carrie also has a full-time job at Nike. So cool to see those two Bowerman Track Club athletes go 1-2. Brittany Charbonneau was was third in 44-32. Got to give a shout-out to Sarah Pease, former Rogue Athletic Club athlete, now training in Indianapolis. She ran 45-06 to get sixth place. And the list, the list goes on. Allison Cleaver. Also, former Rogue Athletic Club athlete got in the top 20. And, and of course, you know, there's others. It looks, again, Sydney DeVore, who's the Brooks Hansen's athlete, Dot McMahon, also Brooks Hansen's athlete. They ended up 33 and 34 and 47-51 and 47-55. It's clear to me that the Brooks Hansen M.O., was just to show up and really scout the course and not worry so much about place on this one as you saw both the men and the women kind of running together and finishing together a little bit back of the pack. So again, I don't know that we can look too much at the racing dynamics here because everybody had a different purpose on the day. But, you know, I do know that it's it's interesting to see this list and see those who now know the course really well and who've had a chance to take a look at it and those who haven't yet. And I'm sure, of course, all the top elites will get out there. But but somebody like Amy Hastings Craig is, is going to be, I'm sure, taking, taking detailed notes to go back and chat with her teammate, Shalane, and, of course, Gwen Jorgensen to tell them about this course. So... There you go. That was the Roll to Gold event. Amy Hastings Craig, of course, gonna be, she's definitely going to be a favorite as she won the last trials to, I think, repeat this time, depending on what happens with Shalane. So now, t- plot twist. Basically, a week after that race, the IAAF announces their new Olympic standards for all events, including the marathon and because we're talking about the marathon trials i think it's important to actually maybe start there as a as an entree or appetizer into this discussion on the overall standards but basically the IAAF bomb just dropped a massive bomb in in really the olympic qualifying world by throwing out what they did with these new Olympic standards and the the running world is a buzz with these standards and so if we look back to the Olympics in 2016 and ask ourselves okay what were the 26 standards for the IAAF tw- sorry 2016 standards for the IAAF and how does that compare to what was recently announced and if you look back to 2016 on the women's side the olympic standard the a standard to get in the olympics was not really that difficult originally it was actually 242 but they moved it back to 245 before the olympics actually happened and if you look at the the 
men's side of things. Originally, it was 217, and they moved that back to, I believe, 219 before things were said and done, and those teams were actually chosen. So then you go and you look at the 2020 standards, and in context, they are changing the entire process so that time isn't the only variable that matters. But if you're just looking at time standards, the new time standard for the marathon for the women is significantly faster. We're talking about more than 15 minutes faster. And so now it's 2.29.30 in order to make the Olympic team in the marathon. and for the women and to 11:30 to make the Olympic team in the marathon for the men. So, we're talking about a shift on the men's side by what is that? 8 or 7 and a half minutes and on the women's side by 15 and a half minutes to get to be eligible to make an Olympic team. Now, and 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 then the other layer to that is that they've also said that the qualifying time period for the Olympics for the marathon runs from January 1st, 2019 to May 31st of next year. And so you also have a scenario where athletes, especially in a marathon event where you don't get to compete that often, nobody has a standard except those who might have gotten it at Tokyo, if you're looking at world majors, or perhaps at Houston, if you're looking at smaller major marathons, or major with a capital, uh, or with a lowercase m versus major with a capital M. And so suddenly, athletes like Galen Rupp, who ran fast at Chicago last year and then had surgery, doesn't have an Olympic standard in the marathon. And because a lot of these athletes maybe who had already run times that would have put them under that previous 245 standard, a lot of athletes I don't think had prepared, especially U.S. athletes, to run another marathon potentially until the trials next year. Because if you start to look at the windows for when you can run marathons, some people had signed up for spring races, certainly, the Bostons and the Londons of the world. But if you hadn't done that, because you wanted to work on other variables. Maybe you also said, I don't want to run a fall race because those are going to be too close to the trials to allow me to optimize both. Then you start to get into a time crunch where you only really have a nine-month window to run a marathon in order to get an Olympic qualifying standard before you have to show up at the trials and be a part of this event where the top three go if your top three, and you have the Olympic standards. So marathon standards dramatically jumped up. Now, the caveat to that is that they also have this secondary way you can get into the Olympics now across all events, which is that there's going to be this new world ranking system by way by which athletes can earn world ranking points, not by time, but by competing in races and earning points depending on the place that they get and depending on the 
the cachet of that race. And so now they have this whole ranking system of races. And if you're in a major race like a the World Championships or a World Major Marathon, if you now, if you finish top 10, basically it'll make you automatically eligible to to make an Olympic team. And But other races like the Houston Marathons of, of the world get put in this hierarchy. And depending on how you compete at those events, you're going to get p- points. But a third place at Houston doesn't give you the same number of points as a third place at Boston or a third place at New York. So now you have this convoluted, convoluted world ranking system to pair with now these, these more aggressive time standards. And ultimately, it's going to make it really confusing for athletes to not only know if they have a standard, but also for fans to know if they have a standard. And for our marathoners, it puts them into a serious crunch time to try to get a potential Olympic standard before the trials next year, because it's likely that that those trials times on a tough course in Atlanta will be, you know, potentially on the border of getting you an Olympic spot, especially if you look at that third spot. I would like to think that the winners of the trials next year will run faster than 211.30 or faster than 229.30. But on a hilly course, on potentially a hot day, that third spot may or may not be there. And if that happens, then what if you don't have a standard achieved in another place? And oh, by the way, those standards are hard to achieve no matter what. And there's very few runners outside of Galen Rupp on the men's side as an example, and outside of a very elite list on the women's side that have even ever run that standard recently. So it's it's really going to be fascinating to look at how all of this plays out. And I think now you're going to have some athletes trying to scramble to get into major races or that that will want to try to do Berlin next year in September so that they could get into a fast race that will allow them an opportunity to get that standard and then also have enough time to turn around and prepare for our trials in the U.S. in February. So that's going to be interesting because typically you don't usually get a lot of U.S. runners who go to Berlin because the appearance fees at something like a New York in the fall are going to outweigh what they can get at Berlin. And But New York being in November is probably too late of a race to do and then turn around and do the trials. So, so it's, it's nuts. It's convoluted. And this now extends to all of the distance events where all of the standards have gotten significantly, significantly faster across the board. And, and you start to ask yourselves, can we even, can we even get three athletes to these standards and and then much less have those top three finish in the top three in our olympic trials so that's a little bit of context but again to summarize you've got now faster time standards to try to qualify for the olympics and you have now also this world ranking system and so if you're then in the 
if you're then ranked high enough in that world ranking system in order to be in the Olympics, then you can also go if you don't have the time standards. So you have two things, time standards, now world ranking system, but the world ranking system is, is not yet developed, or at least the process is developed, but it's not yet published in terms of where people stand. And it will only become clear over the next six to nine months how that will play out and how those rankings will look. And, and so it's, it's just convoluted. And, and to me, the unfortunate thing for the fan is that it just adds this additional layer of opaqueness that is hard to understand for the fan that's not straightforward. And when you look at the U.S. trials system in particular, that is very, very meritocratic, or is a meritocracy. You've got this trial system where if you finish top three and you have the Olympic standard, then you get to go. There's no governing bodies making subjective decisions like there are in many countries, and so there's a lot of beauty in that. It's about the performance on those days. It'll be in February for the marathon trials and then usually late June, early July for the track trials. And so those days matter only. If you finish top three, you get to go. And for the most part in the U.S., especially in 2016, the top three, I think across the board, all had the Olympic standards. So we didn't have to go down beyond that to look at other athletes to, to, to build an Olympic team. It was purely a meritocracy. You finish top three at those events and you get to go. Now it's sort of, well, are you top three? Then do you have the Olympic time standard, which is really fast? And or then where are you in this world ranking list? And by the way, how far they go down on that world ranking list is affected by how many people have the standard, how many countries are represented because you can only take three from each country. and also which races people are doing so it's not just about time it's also about place and ranking points and and this sort of crazy system that you're not going to really be able to know right away by looking at it whether or not somebody is going to be an olympian and so now as fans we're all going to be left wondering in in the dark in in wondering watching the trials whether or not an athlete who gets top three will actually then be able to go. So there's a lot of athletes speaking out about this, a lot of people concerned about it. In a parallel move, the IAAF also eliminated the 5K from the Diamond League series. So now you also have at least one fewer series of 5Ks out there where somebody could either get the standard or earn world ranking points. And so that's also a problem. So it's just really convoluted. I think the goal of the IAAF here was to try to, to try to motivate athletes to compete and to race each other head to head and race in, in higher caliber and higher profile events. But I think what we have as a result really is actually just a more confusing system that is going to make it even more difficult for athletes, especially that up and coming and that younger athlete or that collegiate athlete to potentially make an Olympic team. So as a fan, I'm just annoyed. It seemed like we had a good system, IAAF, and it 
didn't seem to be broken. So I don't understand what we're doing here. It didn't seem like we had a problem drumming up competition in our sport. We have a a bigger problem to me telling the stories of our sport and now telling the stories of our Olympians or potential Olympians just became that much more complicated thanks to these moves and it also makes one of the greatest track meets every four years, the Olympic U.S. Olympic trials, it makes it now even more confusing as to what the outcomes will bear for our U.S. Olympic team. And so it's frustrating and I don't understand it. Sebco, what the hell are you doing? If you're going to invest time and energy into something, can we invest time and energy into catching dopers and cleaning up our sport versus making a more convoluted system to choose those that get to compete at the highest level. So it's frustrating. But at the same time, I think as a practical matter, most likely because of the caliber of athletes we have in the U.S., most likely anybody who can finish top three at the U.S. trials will be able to either have the standard already or be able to make it via the world ranking. So I think as a practical matter, perhaps for us, this is much ado about nothing, but still it creates sort of confusion and uncertainty at a time when we should have have certainty in our process, especially as now we're only, what, a year and six months or so away from the Olympics in Tokyo. So what the hell are we doing, IAAF? This is not helping build fans of our support of our sport. And so with that rant, in almost an hour, I will wrap up this week in current events. Hopefully you enjoyed this special edition episode of me flying solo, banging around these topics. If you have any thoughts on any of it, please do share. You can always send me an email at chris at roguerunning.com. As we gain certainty on this Olympic qualifying process, then we will certainly bring it to you. But as always, of course, thank you for listening. Thanks for being with me on this special edition episode on running current events. You can always check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Look out for my next episode, episode 117, coming on Sunday. And with that, I'll talk to you soon.